I found the edge of the internet. Here's how to access it. Written by, I don't want to use this. Before I tell you how to get to the edge of the internet, I should tell you what it is first. It's easiest to think of the internet as a map of a city, laid out on a table. In the center, you have the busiest locations. Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, YouTube, all those large things. This place is simply called the city. And go past these and you get into a transition location where slightly less people hang out, but we still go called the outskirts. This place tends to consist of the same websites, just more specific and stranger branches of them. These two locations don't need much explaining. They are pretty basic things. The sort of stuff most of us see on a daily basis when going on the internet. Next, we take a dark turn into the deep web, places like the Silk Road, only accessible with Tor browsers. You might think that this is the edge, but we don't consider it to be, as everyone can do one Google search and find out how to get there. We call this location the suburbs, as they represent the suburbs on the map metaphor. This location is a very dark side of the internet, and potentially the broadest. It covers everything from certain rings, to deep web calls to black market sites, with trafficking and hitman for hire. You might think this belongs on the edge, but it doesn't. This place most people will go to at some stage just to view it, and contrary to what you might believe, it's actually a highly moderated place. Every single spy agency on the planet has access to the deepest, darkest corners of this zone, but are bought off into not interfering. After this, we begin to approach the edge. This location has been dubbed the Factories, as it represents the factories and such that are built on the far outskirts of a city. This side tends to be more of a doubled back into the city as it tends to be mostly commonly found on Reddit and YouTube, but mostly is located on far more obscure web pages that I cannot name. It's far harder to define what is in this location as it's incredibly obscure. It mostly consists of short videos or text posts that are completely without context, and the context is never found. I'm going to give an example for this, which isn't something I would normally do. But this video is considered stale meaning. I'm not harming anything by sharing this as an example. This video was originally uploaded in 2016. You may have heard of it before. This video has since been debunked. In essence, this is a video that may be found in the factories. As another example to show you how obscure these videos can be is this. Again, a stale example. The reason that we consider these videos to be a part of the factories is that there is no context given for them. They are just that video, with nothing else. Of course, for these examples, since more people have found them, and answers have been found towards what they are and where they came from, and so we call them stale. After the factories, you get to the farmlands. The farmlands are one of the most difficult places on the internet to access, but not impossible. This place of the internet has now been obscured from common web pages such as YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, etc. 
It may be possible to find the most vague of all possible traces of the farmlands on those sites, but it is near impossible and could take a hundred lifetimes. As far as the actual content on the farmlands goes, it is much more specific than in the factories. The people who have access to the farmlands almost always know where they are, and so discussion is usually limited to things revolving around the edge or other related things. The factories are usually found on message boards for obscure websites that are incredibly difficult to access. But once there, you are free to explore the farmlands where you'll find people discussing anything from how the edge came into existence, to how the edge signifies the death of humanity. It is important to note though, this is not the edge merely a discussion place for the edge. And finally, we arrive at the edge. The Edge is an incredibly complicated part of the internet, so it'll need a lot of explaining before you can actually understand what it is. It is called the Edge of the Internet because you simply cannot go any further. There is less than nothing beyond this. If you attempt to go further, you will find something that is more barren than the void. A location so complicated and impossible for us to comprehend that to step foot in it, a human's primitive mind would perceive it as so empty that there isn't even anything there. When you imagine a map, you probably imagine just the edges suddenly cutting off. But for the internet, it is more as if it is placed on a disk world and the edge falls off into the void. And if you try to go past the edge into the void, well, you'll see later. Concerning what content is actually on the edge, it's something very hard to explain. To understand what it is, you need to understand that the internet is not mankind's greatest invention, but its darkest discovery. The internet has existed since well before the universe. It used to be something like an ethereal plane, where great creatures would roam living in peace. For billions of years, the internet and the universe coexisted in the space, connecting with one another but never touching. Until humans appeared, the gods of the internet wanted to connect with humanity as it was the first intelligent life they had ever met, other than themselves. So, they sent pieces of themselves down to Earth. We saw these beings for what they were. Gods. Gods who could cure disease, stop floods and disasters with a wave of their hand, and bring total bliss to mankind. But of course, we are only human and did what humans do best. And we tried to overthrow the gods and failed disastrously. The gods left this earth and vowed never to return. And so slowly over time, we forgot they existed. And they were either forgotten from history or turned into humanity's ancient gods. We know to today such as Zeus or Jesus. Thousands of years later, the internet was invented. And of course by invented. I mean a way to connect with it was invented. Originally, we kept the internet a secret. We didn't want the public to know about it. Until someday, it got out. To mask what it was, we had to lie. Saying that we had invented it as a means of communicating with one another while on opposite sides of the earth. We invented the map system to keep track of it all. Create larger websites to distract from the dark ones. Creating dark ones filled with evil to distract from the edge. 
creating the factories to distract from the farmlands. You get the picture. So right now, you might be thinking, why do we even need to hide this? Weren't the gods benevolent? And yes, that's exactly right. The gods were benevolent. You see, kicking them out of our world and trying to take over theirs after they simply tried to help us didn't exactly please them. After we first discovered how to access the internet, we made contact with the gods and realized that we must contain them. Thankfully though, this time since we had an understanding of what the internet was, we could hold our own against them and used coding in our technology to hold them at bay, but we could do no more than that. We managed to isolate them from our section of the internet and we kept them locked in theirs. As the internet leaked to the public, we had to create more and more protection for ourselves and these create all the barriers that we have today. So in essence, when looking at the map, the edge is somewhere you can talk to gods and beings older than the universe itself. A truly ancient location. Before I tell you how to access the edge, you need to know that it will come at a cost. A cost that only very, very few are willing to pay. And if I had to kill a thousand innocent souls just to remove that weight from my soul, I would do it in a heartbeat. When you get to the edge, you will meet the gods of the internet, ethereal beings beyond the comprehension of the human mind. At first, they're just going to watch you, usually through something such as a chat room or a forum, where they will initiate conversation with you, and you will instantly know that they are watching you. Sometimes though, they may be much more direct, sending you a video file that is somehow a live recording of themselves. Or, if you are really unlucky, show you an image that will put you inside the internet, right on the edge. For me, I suffered the worst of the three options. I had gotten to the edge and then clicked a link and saw a series of flashing images and went into a seizure despite not having any major medical problems. I woke up soon after though, and found myself standing on a small rock isolated in a giant lake. And just a few feet in front of me, a waterfall that seemed to drop off into the void. I looked up and saw a giant wall lining the lake. Only it wasn't a wall. There was nothing there, but every memory I had ever had was there. And every memory I could have had if I made different life choices was there. Every single branch of my life that I never walked down was there, despite it being something so empty. I felt as if my organs were being eaten from the inside out, as if the devil was inside me and trying to hollow out my skin to use my body to torture my own brain with. It was as if I no longer even had a soul. All this I felt within a second, and I tore my vision away from the wall within the same second. It was far too painful to look at. Suddenly, a voice rang through my skull. Hello, M. For clarification, M is not my name, just what I'll be using to refer to myself. It said, and it wasn't male or female, but it also wasn't either, and neither was it human or artificial. It was something impossible that came from everywhere and nowhere at once. What? Who's there? Where are you? Where am I? What's going on? I said in a panic, 
like nothing I had ever felt before, but my body remained calm. I knew I should be shaking beyond imagination right now, but my body stood valiantly as if I was just standing up for no reason. You've reached the edge, Em. This is where you have spent your lifetime trying to reach. It responded. I, I did it? I asked, my voice quivering. Yes, Em, you did it. I almost laughed from happiness at this. After decades of searching, I finally did it. How do you know my name? I asked, starting to think about what actually getting here meant. I know everything about you. I see into your soul. I feel the blood in your veins and the organs in your body. I taste the electrical signals in your brain and hear all that you see. I am now you, Em, and no secrets about you that you won't even learn until long after your life is over. This chilled me to my core, as you could imagine, but thankfully it still remained as regular human emotions that we all feel. Em, I can help you. I can lead you through to your ideal life. I could create you a universe filled with absolute bliss in a heartbeat. If you choose to let me... It took a long time before I was able to reply to this, and I thought for what could have been seconds or hours for all I knew. But eventually, I found that somehow the absence of everything and the silence became too loud, so I just shot it out. Why would you do that for me? Because, Em, I have my own plans. I will do all that you could ever imagine and more for you if you help me with my plans. What plans are those? I asked with fear in my voice. I wish to reach your earth and to show all people of it the truth. What truth is that? I asked the being. The truth of the internet and of the pain they had put us through. If I accept this offer, what would happen to my people? I've already told you. They would see the truth. Show me the truth first. I demanded of the being. You will regret that, the voice said in the same plain voice. Then it should not be shown to the people of Earth. It is vital that they know the truth. And before I even consider that, I must see it for myself, I angrily said to the being, almost as if I was going to spit on it and walk away. Very well then, but I have warned you. And demanding to see the truth was the greatest mistake of my life. I saw every single horrible event that has ever happened in history, all the pain of anyone who has ever been hurt. I felt the combined hunger of every person who was starved to death, and felt the flesh in my bones wither away along with it. I looked at my arms and saw the flesh turning into mush and rotting away. Maggots crawling out of the wounds and insects feasting on my rotten core. But no matter how much flesh I lost, there was always more. I felt the insanity of a man left in solitary confinement for a thousand lifetimes. I felt his insanity. I felt his pain. His hunger. I felt his deepest desires. I felt his urge for mercy and to die and I felt his tears form in my eyes and his mind split into two over the pain of his confinement. 
and I felt this a hundred thousand times at once. I felt the pain of all those put into mental asylums to be cured. I felt what they truly had. I felt their trauma. I felt the experiments performed on them. I felt the pain of the lobotomies that they were forced to endure. I felt the electrical shocks travel through their bodies as they were tied to a chair and poked with sticks for fun. I felt the pain of my head being crushed through some sort of helmet. I felt the cracks in my skull form and splinter as I felt my eardrums rupture and bleed, along with my blood vessels exploding and the blood pouring out of my eyes. I felt my jaw slowly being removed from my skull, while feeling my torso stabbed a thousand times. I felt bugs crawling inside every orifice that I have and under my skin. I felt the pain of every mother who has lost a child. I felt all of their tears. I felt all of their trauma. I felt every single thing each one of them felt. I felt the child's death and all the pain that they had suffered. I felt all of this countless times over. Any single time in human history that a person had ever felt pain, I felt that exact pain all at once. I felt the death of each human, each tear cried, each small scab and the pain of those who had been skinned alive. I felt every single one of those, every single one of them, all at the same time. And despite there being trillions of indescribable events happening all over my body at the same time, I could feel each and every single one. I could recognize if the pain was that of the greatest pain ever felt by a human ever. Every single part of it I knew. And I knew exactly who it happened to. And I knew when it happened. I even felt the pain of those who didn't even remember it. I felt it all. Physical or mental. It all burnt the same. And then it stopped. Instantly, all the pain cut out. And I was back outside the internet in my normal desk chair. My sister was shaking me asking if I was okay. She said that I was screaming and convulsing like something out of a horror movie. I told her that it was just a really bad nightmare, which to me was believable, since I had often had similar events before in the past, but I could tell by the look in her eye that she didn't quite buy it. I eventually got her to leave and I checked my computer. There is a message on it. Thank you for visiting the internet. If you would like to reconsider our offer, simply return to The Edge. I think the only reason I wasn't in such a state of trauma that I couldn't function was because the events I had felt were not felt on Earth. I feel as though if I had felt them here, I would be dead before the feelings even started. But I still have the memory of every single thing I felt as clearly as the moment I was feeling it. But as I said... I will tell you how to access the edge. The first step is to believe in the edge. So, if you want to find it, you'll have to believe that everything I have told you was real. And if you wish to continue, you deserve it. For good or bad reasons, though, I cannot decide. So, how do you get there? I'm going to take you through the easiest route to the edge. It's not the fastest way there, but it is the easiest. The first step is to open YouTube and click a video in your recommendation box. You cannot search for a video. If you do, it will not work. If you have already seen the video before or not is irrelevant, you can click on any video. 
If you want the purely fastest way to get to the edge, pick the video that has the lowest view count. Although doing this may lower your chance of accessing the edge. Once you click the video, watch it in its entirety. Do not read the description. This will invalidate this attempt. Once the video is completed, click on a video on the sidebar with a lower view count. If there is none, just simply pick the lowest view count. While doing this, it's critical that you don't scroll down to try and find more videos. It must be one already available on the sidebar. You can zoom out, however, to increase the chance of finding a good video. You'll also need to be using either a laptop or a desktop. With a laptop, you'll have a higher chance of success. Make sure that you are connected to your home internet. If you live at a university or somewhere with shared Wi-Fi, this will not affect it. Use whatever browser that you normally use. Do not use a Tor browser, even if it's your regular one for whatever reason. You should keep all your regular computer apps running and not shut anything down. However, make sure that you only have one internet tab open. Next, repeat the same steps, watch the full video. Don't read the description and select the next video. Keep doing this until you eventually find a video with zero views. For this step, doing any of the following will invalidate the attempt to access the edge. Commenting, liking or disliking, switching to another tab, subscribing to the channel, reading the description, pausing the video more than three times, sending the video to anyone else, being with another person while watching the video, Use an alternate account, you must use your main account. Using mobile data or internet that you do not have at your home. Just for clarification, some things that are safe to do. Leave your computer to either get food or to use the bathroom. Leaving for another reason might invalidate the attempt. Look away from the screen. Use headphones or listen without. The volume must be on though. Have animals with you. Communicate with another person via text, as long as you don't tell them about the video. Make sure you follow the steps exactly as I said, without breaking any of the rules. If you do, you will have to restart from the very beginning. Once you locate a video with zero views, make sure it's just not a child playing on YouTube or something similar. It must be a video without any context or background information that could have been sourced from anywhere. It could be some proper production made in the 1960s, or a random short video produced two days ago. Anything will work, as long as there is no context on the video. If the video appears to have all these criteria met, check the comments. The video should have zero comments as it has zero views, but it is still important to check this. If there are comments depending on what they are, you may have to restart. I'll list what shortly. If there are no comments, then, and only then, may you read the description. If you're lucky, the video description will be empty. If you're unlucky, the description will be filled with information. If the description is empty, you will hopefully have another zero views video on the sidebar. If so, click on that. If the description is filled then, well, it's rather complicated, so for simplicity, I'm going to divide it into different events, including the comments. There are 10 common pathways for this to go, so I'll just put the simple version of them all below. Event 1. 
There is a no comments proceed normally. Event 2. There are troll comments saying something stupid, mocking the video or saying something off topic. Proceed normally. Event 3. There is a comment asking, what is this? Or something similar. Proceed normally. Event 4. There are over three comments of any description. You must restart. Event 5. There is someone providing context for what the video is. You must restart. Event 6. There is someone claiming to be a person in the video, other than the original poster of the video. You must restart. Event 7. There is a description providing full context for the video. You must restart. Event 8. There is a link in the description. Do not click it yet. If you do, you will have to restart. Event 9. The description contains information about what happens in the video, but not where it is from or background context. Continue as normal. Event 10. The description is written in a foreign language. Have a friend translate it. Do not put it through any online translator. If you fall into the category of the description was empty so I clicked a new video with zero views, follow these same steps, check the comments, check description, repeat if empty. Eventually, you will get to one of two options, a video with a description containing some normal writing or containing a link. First, we have a situation A, where the description does not contain a link. In this situation first, take the title of the video and paste it into a new tab on Google. And do not close the tab with the video or you'll have to restart. Click on every single link that comes up for the search results. You can do this in the same tab and return to the search page or simply open a new tab. This does not affect anything. For every link, read the article that comes up in its entirety. It is not required to read any ads or information not pertinent to the article. If the article is able to provide context for what the video is, where it came from, what it depicts or is about the mystery of the video, you must restart. If the article contains anything related to the video really, you're going to have to restart. Once you check every single article that comes up for the title of the video, next enter a brief summary of the video's events in your browser and do the same thing. If you find results relating to the video, you must restart. If you do not, then reword what happens in the video and search again. You must repeat this a minimum of three times, however. I recommend at least six to seven times. Once you are sure that you cannot find any information regarding what the video is, download the video and then upload it to YouTube. You must use your regular Google account for this. If you use another, you will have to restart. When uploading the video to YouTube, place any link in the description. Do not contain any other information in the description, and the link can be to any website, even if it's something that you can't normally access. Just a link that would work for a standard web browser. Once the video is uploaded, simply open the link. Now, for a secondary viable category, where you find a link in the description of another video without any comments, any views, or anything else in the description. First, follow the previous steps of googling the video title, what happens in it, etc. Do the same level of research. The same rules apply and if there's any information about it on the internet anywhere, you have to restart.
If there is no information on it, simply open the link. You can do this in a new tab or the same one. It has no effect. Now regardless of whether you found the link in a description or had to upload the video, you should now be on a website titled The Edge. With that exact spelling too. If anything is slightly different, close the tab immediately. And do not click on that link again. Or you'll suffer something worse than my experience. If you do arrive on this fake website, you'll have to start again. If this doesn't happen though, you're now free to explore the webpage. You've made it to the farmlands. You might think that sounds like a simple process to access it, but it can take years to access once through this method. Finding a video with zero views through a simple navigation from the recommendation box isn't a super hard task, but this video must not have any information relevant to it. It must be a complete mystery, and even if a single person had commented on a post 17 years ago mentioning it, you won't be able to use it as an access point. And finding something on the internet which no person has ever mentioned before in its history of its existence with mankind is no easy task. And the more people who try to access the edge, the harder it gets. But hey, congratulations, you managed to make it to the farmlands. Before I tell you what you can do there, there are a few things that you should know. The first thing is that it changes every time someone loads it. And the only thing that remains consistent is that in the top left, there will be words saying, The Edge. They must be exactly like this. They may be on separate lines, but they will always be in the upper left hand corner. And always spelled exactly like that, including capitals and full stops. If anything is slightly different, close the tab straight away. And do not look at anything on the website. Or, by the Lord's name, you will regret it to the end of time and beyond. The second thing is that there are extremely strict rules on the edge, all of which can be contained under three rules. 1. Do not tell anyone about the edge or how to get to it. If you're asked about it, do not answer and destroy your computer instantly. 2. Do not attempt to reach the true edge unless you have been granted permission. 3. Do not record a screenshot or in any way document any evidence of the Edge's existence. I once knew someone who broke rule number two. Let's just say that now, they legally never existed. The third thing you need to know about the website is that the people on there are more like a single organism. We don't share a hive mind or anything. However, we think the same and act the same. And we are in essence clones of one another in different skins who work together to protect the edge. And trust me, you don't want to know what happens if you disagree with us. Those are all the major things you need to know about the edge. Though of course, there is more but you'll learn all of that along your journey through it. You're now free to roam the website as you please. Since it changes constantly, I can't tell you how to navigate the site. But what I can tell you is that it's very small. Typically, it presents itself with nothing more than create account, chat rooms, and log out and forums. If you click the log out button, you'll be locked from the edge forever and never be able to access it ever again. Clicking the create account button will usually show an error that you already have an account created or something similar to that. The forums button typically is pretty empty. 
There are functional forms, but most people are far too scared to use it in fear of uh, violating rule number three. So, uh, the final button is chat rooms. And when you'll click on this, you'll be taken to the chat rooms where it's as simple as it sounds. Anyone with an account, which is everyone, can interact freely and they can start a conversation. One thing that is consistent about this part of the site is that you will never see messages posted. You'll see a box where they should appear in a spot for you to type. You'll see a bar of online and offline members that is empty. And you'll see an empty square for the title. This is a security measure. If anyone in the real world happens to be looking at you while you're in the chat rooms without you knowing, they won't see anything. They'll just think that you're a weirdo staring at an empty screen. Any messages sent, you won't see them in your head either though, you'll simply know. You'll simply know who was online. You'll know who sent that message. You'll know all the information that you need. My advice here is simply to start chatting. I'm assuming if you made it this far, you're determined to get to the edge and witness it for yourself. So, the only way to do this is to engage. Share theories about what you think the edge is, its origins and why it's there. Who you think the ancient gods are. What the ethereal plane of the internet used to be like. Over time, you'll slowly be welcomed. But be warned, this comes at a price. You will turn into one of us. You will begin to think the same, feel the same, and be identical to us in every way except your body. And one day, after many, many years, you may be granted access to the edge. Of course, at any time, you could just go and click on the access point to the edge. It will present itself to you when it believes that you want to access it. And we would be powerless to stop you. But the moment that you return from the edge, you'll find 500 men surrounding your house and within minutes, you won't exist anymore. And no one will ever know that you did. So now, you know how to access the edge of the internet. But you're probably thinking, wait, why would they be telling the entire internet about this? And well, the truth is, I'm not. Every other person reading this story is reading about a woman who became pregnant with something inhuman. But you, you are reading this in its true form. Because even though I don't quite know your name yet, I need you to come to us. To come to the edge. We know the ancient gods are about to break through and put every human on earth through pain so unimaginable that it cannot even be wished upon the worst sadist to ever exist. And we know that when the ancient gods last graced this earth, that they left a part of themselves on it to act as a spy so that when they would return one day, they would know the ins and outs of earth and know how to defeat humanity in a single flick of their wrist. We can only hope that you have learned what humanity is, and being a human for centuries on end has taught you that we do not deserve the pain the ancient gods plan to bring to us. May you have mercy on all of us, as the fate of our eternal existence depends on you. My grandpa was in the Navy during World War II. He had some interesting stories. Written by Throwaway125566 Being up front, I'm not a huge fan of my great-granddad. 
He always sought isolation from others. When I was a kid, I heard that he had fought in the war and I thought it was the coolest thing ever. I wanted to ask if he ever served on a battleship or got to shoot at other ships. But he always refused to say anything about it. Now that I'm older, I can get why he would want to stay quiet about a lot of things he saw. But back then, I didn't appreciate it. I just thought that he was a crusty old man who hated kids. To give you some idea of what he looked like, picture Lawrence Tierney in Reservoir Dogs and add like 20 years to it. The man was practically built out of salt. Before he passed in 2015, I decided that I wanted to at least make an effort to get to know him better. And Great Granddad had all of three things to say. The government was betraying us somehow. How changed with every visit. Not to go to the ocean. I remember once as a kid, my parents tried to take him with us to Ocean City. And he screamed bloody murder until we just laughed. It was the most active I had ever seen him. And a few other things that were really bad because I liked boys. I stuck with it though. I could tell that he was lonely at the retirement home. And I think he knew that he didn't have much time left. Eventually, after a while, I convinced him to at least tell me about his time in the war. He agreed as long as I brought him a case of beer every time that I came over. I'm putting this on my throwaway account because I don't want my family or friends seeing this. Disclaimer. I know nothing about ships and stuff, so forgive me if I mess up terminology here and there. For context, Great Granddad was a boatswain's mate, or a bosun's mate, he says, aboard a destroyer. The ship he served on was the USS O'Reilly, a Fletcher-class destroyer. He enlisted in 1942 and, as he describes, was about 5 feet 8 inches and 10 stone in weight. I won't use his or any other real names out of respect. Unfortunately, he never gave me any specific dates beyond the year. One thing that he emphasized to me is that, with the amount of crossings he did, and the years that he spent at sea, a lot of things just blended together after a while. After some things just end up happening so much, they become boring. The first story he told me was on his first crossing in the Atlantic. His destroyer was assigned to a convoy heading to England around 1942 or 1943. Contrary to what I thought, Grandad despised the ship. The ship was one hell of a needy bee, in his own words. I didn't know quite what he meant by that until he started getting into his stories. His first crossing didn't involve fighting U-boats or anything but it took place in the coldest part of the year crossing, the Black Pit. Essentially an area of the sea where airplanes can't cover the convoy. The waves, however, were getting high enough that the water was essentially swamping the bow every time the ship pitched downwards. Granddad remembered during the first crossing, the ocean had so much chop to it that every night, he feared that the ship would sink and he would drown. It turns out that he had never learned how to swim. Every night in his bunk, he would listen to the ship groan and creak as it rose up over a wave. 
and then a log crashed as it pitched down into the water. He never quite got used to that. The water was always perpetually freezing as well. Not quite cold enough to freeze, but certainly not warm enough to ever be comfortable. His second crossing did actually involve action. His ship and a Canadian corvette, little flowers he called them, were intercepting something on sonar. They thought it was a U-boat, and given it was close to the convoy, they had to check it out. As they closed in on it, it suddenly vanished. Mind you, I was a little skeptical too, but he swears up and down by the honor of the man at the sonar that the thing just up and disappeared, he said. We swept that entire area of sea for hours, and we even brought in the other destroyers too. I thought it was a thing with our equipment, but no way four sweepers just suddenly decided to stop working. Still, on the second crossing a day after that, they again encountered something. This time, an actual U-boat in the late hours of the day. He said a watchman had spotted the periscope ahead of them very close. Kraut slept in us, he said. I don't know what he meant by that. Maybe they were overconfident or they straight up didn't notice. Either way, the captain ordered that death charges be ready. I knew what death charges did already and how they worked, but Great Granddad explained further. In order to make them explode at a certain depth, we had a wrench that would use to adjust a dial on the head of the charge and they were the drum type. We would turn that dial to make it explode this deep and so on and so forth. It was ordered that the charges be set to explode deeper than they had already been set. They were expecting the sub to dive deeper to get away. As the ship went right over the sub, they were ordered to fire depth charges. Unfortunately, one seaman who was at the rear still adjusting the dials didn't call that he was complete nor that he was finished, and nobody saw him apparently. He was resting his hand in the rack as he was adjusting, and when they dropped the charges, one of the charges rolled right over his fingers and crushed them. It was like spent tubes of toothpaste, Grandad said, only with a lot more blood. All the fingers aside from his thumb were amputated, and he was sent home. I envied that guy. He lived in Florida for crying out loud. The death charges they fired, unfortunately, didn't make the U-boat surface, and after chasing it for some time, the U-boat apparently slipped away thanks to a decoy. We wasted an entire spread on a thing called a Pillenwerfer, he said to me. By the time that we realized, the U-boat was already gone and quiet. On another crossing, they actually did get a U-boat this time. They caught it surfaced for air in the middle of heavy fog, and while they dove down, they managed to dunk a spread of death charges on it. I was the one to spot it, actually, Granddad said. Off our starboard beam, we made right standard rudder to check for any debris, and sure enough, we see a slick of oil and some scrap. But the only real way to know for sure was to look for body parts. He explained that under the immense pressure of water and with depth charges going off all around it, a submarine collapsing underwater from pressure isn't the prettiest sight. We found some pieces and a man's head. Granddad had paused for a few seconds to think on that.
A shame about that crot, and didn't look that old. But that was the end of that. Our first U-boat. At another crossing, the phantom sonar blips happened again. Now, phantom blips apparently were pretty common. Sometimes, when near shore, the sonar would ping off of reefs or shipwrecks. He related a tale back from a British sailor on how they dropped a few charges on the wreck of Lustinia by accident. But these were occurring over deep water where this shouldn't be happening. One day, a captain of one of the destroyer escorts loses his mind yelling about how there is a U-boat directly right of the convoy. And we check it and there's one left. The two escorts ahead ping and there's two ahead. And now we're thinking, what the hell is this? There's no way these U-boats are just slipping underneath us to hang out with the ships. And just like that, the blips had disappeared. The fleet commodore apparently lost his crap once he had heard about it. But granddad didn't go in any further detail. And the strange thing about these lips were that they were moving in perfect formation. U-boats don't do that. Sometimes they spread out. Sometimes they collapse inward. But it's not like they can talk to each other down there, otherwise we'd hear it. And every time we swept the sea with the sonar around those contacts, we would ping more. Almost if we were pinging a wall or something. Something big. Grandad stood watch one night in the middle of the crossing. There's no moon out, so it's pitch black, he said. While I'm walking the ship, I saw Hutch. Hutch was a gunner that he had described to me on one of the 40mm guns. He had been on a few crossings before even Grandad had showed up. He was at the gunwale climbing over. A leg from going overboard. He grabbed him and pulled him in. What the hell were you doing, Hodge? He yelled to him. What were you doing? I'll never forget the way Hodge looked. I guess he just snapped or something. He looked distant to me. He said he was climbing over because he thought he saw his wife's face on the water, calling for him to jump in. Granddad had brought him below and then reported what happened to the officer of the watch who then reported it to the captain. I would have been fine keeping my mouth shut about that. Some people are built differently, respond differently to stress, I think. But according to him, the captain personally went to see Hutch to ask him about the face in the water. How would it be a fly on the wall in that conversation? He didn't hear more from Hutch. He ended up getting to a different ship. As for me, the captain told me, Don't ever say anything about any face in the water to anyone. And so I didn't. During another crossing, Granddad apparently got thrown out of bed by one of the lieutenants because the O'Reilly was being attacked by a kraken. I actually laughed out loud at this, and so did Granddad. Turns out, it wasn't a kraken at all. It was actually a giant squid floating up next to the ship. Well before giant squids were recorded, actually. It wasn't as huge as Granddad was hoping. He had read about them in 20,000 leagues under the sea before. I'm kind of sure he was just making this one up, though. It had eyes like dinner plates, but the skin was all pale, and it moved like it had no life left in it. Like something stuck the spirit from it, I guess. We all wanted to fish it up as a trophy, 
but the captain ordered it to be left, and so we left it there. Grandad was really quiet in telling this story. Sometimes the U-boats got through. No matter how well we did, sometimes the crots were better. One day, a U-boat manages to slip through, nails a tanker ship, and we're talking about a lot of oil now suddenly spilling into the water, and a lot of flames now lighting it all up. That stuff doesn't just go out because it's in the ocean. The tanker dove down by the bow and sank in 15 minutes after taking two torpedo hits. We saw men in the water, but they were covered in oil, and they were on fire, burning, screaming for help. Convoy had a rescue ship already on site to help, but we had to stay just to make sure the guy didn't come back for seconds. I was glad that we kept our distance. Sure as hell didn't want to see what that was like. During a low period, in a moonless night watch, Grandad swore up and down he heard noises from the water. Usually, the only things you expect to hear are waves, maybe seagulls and the ship itself. But Grandad told me that he felt like he was hearing voices from the water itself, calling to him. They sounded like a singer. I had heard in a dive back in Richmond with the most beautiful voice. He thought that he was going under some kind of a battle fatigue, some sort of thing, and he reported it to the officer of the watch, a lieutenant. The lieutenant told him to just ignore it. Granddad asked him exactly what he was trying to ignore. Yeah, those voices, they come and go. Just ignore them. He never quite ignored the voices. But he sure as hell never reacted or shown any interest in the voices ever again. What disturbed Grandad wasn't the fact that he was hearing voices. It was how matter-of-fact the lieutenant was about it. As if the thing happened all the time. And then I remembered Hutch and I thought to myself, Actually, does this happen all the time? Grandad witnessed quite a few ships sinking in his lifetime, and told me a few, never happily, obviously. But Grandad was very distraught about this one. We were in crossing in the night. My last crossing now that I remember before they shipped us across the canal into the Pacific. We noticed this one ship, a Greek munitions runner lagging behind the convoy. The captain of the O'Reilly ordered the ship to turn around and screen it until it caught up. From a little radio chatter he could overhear, he at least thought he heard that something was causing them to slow down. Now obviously, you can't just stop the entire convoy for one ship. So the convoy continues on while Grandad's ship goes over to render aid. That was when the sonar man called out a contact next to the Greek ship. So close, in fact, that he was sure it was underneath it. It was beyond the crowds to toy with us. They wouldn't send underneath his ship for funsies. It just wasn't logic. And that was when Grandad saw it. He was on the bridge wing with the captain when they saw the Greek ship. A massive, multi-ton cargo freighter. Just sink. 
It was like you poked a hole in the bottom of a tub. Like a drain, just suck the ship under stern first. I swear by my own two eyes that I saw that water bend downwards. He listened to the cries of the agreed crew over the radio as the ship went under, in just under half a minute. And then the sea settles, like there was never a ship there. Nobody could believe it aboard the ship. We went flank speed and just ran out of there before we were next. I remember the look of the captain. Was he scared? I asked. No. He just looked frustrated. Like this kind of thing just happens. The official report to the Commodore and to all command above us was that the ship was sunk by U-boats and lost with all hands on deck. There really wasn't any real way to say that something just sucked the ship under. No maelstrom, no whirlpools. Nothing on earth could do such a thing. We were ordered to remain quiet on what we actually saw. Reports and letters were censored heavily. We made sure to watch our gossip because a new rumor had spread on the ship that we would be thrown overboard for even thinking about what we saw. Eventually, it just became something of a myth that we told to scare new guys. Most of the crew ended up being transferred in ones or twos or small groups before the war's end. I was one of the few who remained on O'Reilly the entire time. I asked him why he always kept quiet about all this stuff for so long. And with the saddest look on his face, he said, Nobody would ever believe me. Nowadays, I really doubt he ever actually fought in the war. He didn't leave us any heirlooms. There are no pictures of him in uniform. No letters to great-grandma. Nothing. And as much research as I've been doing as of late, there is very little to actually support him going to war. I can't even find anything about the USS O'Reilly. There was a ship named it, but I have a different class than Grandad told me. At the same time, I don't quite believe that he was lying to me. What would he gain from claiming he fought in a war at his age? I don't know. He had plenty of more stories that I couldn't quite squeeze in here. I actually had the foresight to write it all down, just so that I could reference it in my own research. I may or may not relate more as I go along through it. Frankly, I'm quite sure that he wanted to tell me these stories, and I actually understand now why he hates the ocean at least. I have to go sleep now. Maybe I'll respond in the morning. We fight for the forgotten. We solve the crimes the cops can't solve. Written by A.P. Royal
approximately 40% of homicides remain unsolved in the United States. Think about that for a second. Does that statistic freak you out? It should. That's the reality. The world is a dangerous place. The good guys, despite their best efforts, don't always find the criminals. This stat, among other things, had been keeping me up at night. I'd become a zombie, draped in sweaty bedsheets, living off of Chinese takeout boxes. I was slowly being sucked into the black hole that is the internet. After my breakup with Vanessa, I had nothing left but time. I was falling into rabbit holes that I had never experienced before. The gleam of the laptop. My droopy, bloodshot eyes. I know that I wasn't healthy. But what I was finding was so alluring, so tantalizing, so captivating. I really had no conscious choice. I had to keep clicking and clicking. What I discovered was uh, there are an alarming number of cold cases in America. The victim's stories left me unsettled, squirming in my bed. There was an abundance of resources to sift through. Articles, news, stories, videos, theories. Occasionally, new information would surface and pull you back in. There was mystery. There was murder. They all eventually lead you to a frustrating dead end. Every night, the faces of the families haunted me in my dreams. Empty, sad eyes searching for answers. I realized, like many others, that the police needed help. The community welcomed me with open arms. Anyone could sign up and view the forums. I chose to help, to speak up and fight for the forgotten. What we lacked in experience, we made up with determination. I became dedicated. I became a collaborator. I became a web sleuth. Our research helped police track down Monica Monroe's killer. Five years of dead ends put to bed by a group of internet nerds. It was a collaborative effort. One user blew up the logo of Kent Carlson's greasy hoodie. Another member recognized the distinct mountaintop logo and matched it with a small town recluse in southern Oregon. That was one example, among many, that our community was really proud of. Indirectly, our theories had led police to hundreds of other victories. They may not like to admit it, but our persistence kept these cases alive. It wasn't all Sherlock Holmes-level detective work. Some theories were way out of left field, but the most important part was someone was still searching. Law enforcement soaked up all the credit, too. That was just how things worked. We were a nameless, faceless bunch, accepting of the lack of recognition. For the first time in my life, I felt like I was making a real difference. Eventually, 
the thirst for answers left me wanting more. A neon sign read, Mulligan's Tap House, crookedly strung above the entrance. The GNN flickered off and on in sporadic spurts. It didn't feel like a friendly neighborhood pub. The dingy lights and 80s rock seemed to attract a certain rough-around-the-edges type. I walked past a couple of raggedy-looking patrons, passed out at the bar. Stepping across the sticky tile floor, I settled into a back corner booth. I can't believe we're doing this. I ordered a pint from the waitress, my nose adjusting to the smell of cigarettes and malt whiskey. TJ, next time I pick the spot. Bits of leather were peeling off the side of the booth. Through my headphones, I could hear a nervous snicker in response. I knew him as a gold rush, a member of the community. A rusty bell dinged, welcoming in the first, Tyson Fox. His receding hairline and skinny neck looked exactly like the photos. He calmly glided into a booth in the opposite corner. My palms began to sweat. Five minutes later, Alan Billows pulled up a stool at the edge of the bar. He pulled out a cigarette, sparked it up, and surveyed the room. He had a mountain of a chin and a barrel of a belly. A true farmer boy through and through, I thought. When the third walked in, Dean Gear, I went into a full-blown panic. He was a shifty-looking fellow with beady and great eyes. He sauntered over to a table right in front of my booth. Uh, guys, we have a problem here, I gulped. The eagles have landed. All three. My hands were shaking as I took a sip of my beer. The adrenaline dump was overwhelming as I stared at our three targets. We were told to cast a wide net. Some people say yes, but for whatever reason, they get spooked and they don't show. And people were flaky at the best of times, especially when dealing with strangers. It was surreal seeing them in person, people that I had virtually stalked and studied online. We had somehow reeled them in. The lure was successful. Too successful. You've got to be kidding me, TJ said. What do we do now? To be honest, I had no clue. This was a logistical nightmare. It was so much easier hiding behind the comfort of your computer screen. It was safe. It was anonymous. What this was, this experience, it felt incredibly foreign to me. It was hard to explain. It was just so much more real in person. From my vantage point at the back of the bar, I maintained a clear view of all three. How long can you keep them here? I asked. Fifteen, maybe twenty minutes tops, TJ said. I can stall. I'm not worried about that. The problem will be getting them out again. 
people don't take too kindly to being stood up. I could hear TJ typing frantically on his phone. Before I could respond, Jess cut in with a shaky voice. Guys, I'm feeling really nervous. My side, as my hopes began to sink. I couldn't blame her. She was putting herself in a massive amount of danger. But she volunteered as crazy as it was. So the plan was formulated around her. This whole operation would be a bust without her playing her part. Just take a deep breath, Jess. I said slowly. I'll be right there with you in the bar. At the moment you guys leave, TJ has your back in the parking lot. There was a long pause before she chimed in again. I think we should call it off. I'm sorry. Let's try another night. I gripped my glass. Think about the families, Jess. The Winslows, the Petrillos, the Jane Doe's, and countless others. These three men were not your average Joes looking to blow off steam at the bar. They were monsters who didn't deserve to see the light of day. No one has been able to prove it up to this point. But we had our theories and an opportunity to make some real headway tonight. Okay, she sighed. But I'm only one person, Eric. She's right, TJ said. We're messed up here. We need to focus on one. There was a long pause as I took another sip. Tyson seemed preoccupied with the boxing match on the TV. Alan was calmly watching a group of people play pool, and Dean was typing away on his phone. So, which one? I asked. Jess, maybe you decide. Dean was the sickest in my opinion, and the highest risk of danger. He had done time before. Ten years for a myriad of charges. Drugs, assault, other things that were horrible. It was a tame rap sheet considering police had linked him to multiple missing persons cases that spanned across several years. A beat-up navy blue hatchback had been spotted by witnesses frequenting popular call-girl hotspots where the girls had been taken. The mother of one of the victims, Cecilia Petrillo, was active on the message boards pleading for help. No idea on the plate, unfortunately, but JT had confirmed he rolled up at Mulligan's in a similar vehicle. Alan didn't have the same track record as Dean that we could find, but that didn't mean he wasn't guilty. He was a leading member of a gang normally spewing venom all over his social media accounts. One of our members had doxed him to be in the same vicinity of two cold cases, both of African-American descent a couple years ago. The police had been tracking him for years for videos portraying motivated assaults. We could tell from his online footprint that he loved women nearly as much as sharing his worldviews. Tyson was the father of Ashley Winslow, a missing persons case that spanned over a decade. She vanished one night when she was scheduled for a sleepover with her friend. Her mom had crumbled under the tragedy, but the father had always seemed so unaffected. They divorced a year after the disappearance. On social media, 
he seemed to be going through a midlife crisis of sorts. The hope was that, with a combination of liquor and female attention, some rapport could be established. Maybe not tonight, maybe not this month, but eventually they would open up. Sex or the possibility of it was a powerful tool to have. We figured secrets that sinister and heavy can wear a man into the dirt. Jess had had theater experience and amateur improv. It was an interrogation experience, but it was some valuable skills to have. It also helped that she was a young and attractive woman. With those skills and some disguises, we were confident she could slowly extract information. We would have a recording and hopefully it would be enough to lead to an arrest. A few minutes went by in silence. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw Alan get up from his stool. Crap, I stammered. Guys, guys, Alan is leaving. I repeat, he's walking out. I watched his big body trudge out the door, the ding of the dusty bell as it slammed shut. Jess, I said. No response as I continued to keep my eye out on the other two. Hello? Still nothing. Just a ding of the bell as a group of rowdy construction workers had pushed through the entrance. Guys, did I lose you? Eric, we have a problem, TJ said. I think Jess bailed. God dang it. I paid my tab and I stormed out. Walking past the two monsters, left to roam free. As time passed, I realized the naivety of my expectations. Our plans in that thread were outlandishly ambitious. We were asking a lot. Too much from a single person. But to say that I wasn't disappointed at the outcome, it would be a lie. I longed for another shot. Another opportunity at those scumbags. I eventually gave up, as our thread began to get buried by other posts. I wasn't receiving responses to my messages, so I took the hint. But I had continued my web-sleuthing ways, scouring the internet. I was back in my rhythm again, back on the hunt. One late night, I stumbled across a post that was trending rapidly atop the forums. Help, find one of our own. Search for Truth 42 Missing The link was a photo of Jess Harborough. Her family's face is blurred in the shot. She was posing amongst a pile of leaves in a fall photo shoot. 25 years old, missing. My hands trembled as I scrolled through the member list, hovering my mouse over her user profile. Offline, 15 days. A million thoughts collided through my mind as I frantically put these search engines to work. This search effort felt different this time. She was one of her own. I went in search of a cryptid that my great-grandfather had encountered. Written by Sicarius. Whatever your thoughts are on California as a state, 
There is no denying that it is the home to some of the most awe-inspiring landmarks, not just in the U.S. but in the world. Sequoia National Park in particular, which is 631 square miles of beauty, is home to one of the oldest and largest living organisms in the world, the behemoth General Sherman Redwood Tree. It's mind-boggling to think that this ancient being was alive for thousands of years. It was alive during the American Revolution, during the Spanish Inquisition. It was alive during the reign of King Tut, as many of its sister redwoods were that constitute the forest lands. This lost world has seen its share of rivers moving and species evolving, and unfortunately going extinct as well. The last known California grizzly bear sighting was in 1924, after they were thought to have been hunted to extinction by prospectors who poured into the California mountains during the gold rush. Who knows, there could still be one out there somewhere. These type of sightings happen quite frequently. The Yangtze River dolphin, thought to be extinct, has also recently reappeared. Beyond the California grizzly bear and the Cyclopean redwoods, I believe there is something else in those mountains. The radical California wildfires that had been plaguing the state for nearly two decades have had a monumental, possibly irreversible toll on the various parks' ecosystems. While most fires are natural and sometimes necessary, they have been getting more pervasive and out of control. However, there is another cause which is much less talked about. Over the years, people have been pushing more and more into the California wilds, not only creating infrastructure which gives fuel to fires, but carelessly causing them as well. Just some of the causes of the wildfires range from vehicular sparks to faulty power lines and so on. As a result, animal populations have begun to flee their homes and push back into towns and cities, occasionally resulting in attacks. The craziest stories of animal attacks weren't coming from those that wandered into town, though. Soon after, there was circulations of attacks from strange, unidentified creatures that were monstrous in nature. They were described as being nearly the size of a horse and bird-like. They sounded so outlandish. These people had to have been attacked by mountain lions or bears or something. The natives of the area, however actually had stories of these creatures dating back hundreds of years, so possibly it's not that far-fetched. Either way, something that was once living deep in the woods was now beginning to emerge, it seems. And then I came across something that cemented my intrigue. Not too long ago, my grandfather had passed away. I'd like to believe that he went peacefully, but the poor old man had a few health issues caused by the Central Valley's poor air quality. While rummaging through his old belongings, I came across what my father told me was the old journal of my great-great-grandfather, which my grandfather had kept in an old cedar chest. Apparently, my great-great-grandfather was quite the renowned tracker and surveyor during his time. I spent the whole afternoon reading the thing, emerging myself into a time which sprang into existence right after the era of the American Old West. One of the journal entries details an expedition up into the Sequoia National Forest. July 26th of 1908. 
the previous few nights have been filled with such peril as I have never felt in all my previous adventures. We have come up into the Sierra Nevadas, my colleague and I, Mr. Jim Foxhart, for a very peculiar job sanctioned to us by the state of California. The state is beginning a more aggressive expansion into these foothills, which were once occupied by the Monachi. They claim this expansion has caused some commotion from some peculiar wildlife, sounding mostly of monsters in their various descriptions. We rendezvoused with a Dr. Edward McMillan, a biology from the University of Davis, who had accompanied us to catalog and identify this potentially unknown species, though I was dubious that we would come across anything of the sort. On about the third night, setting up camp much deeper into the redwood forest, I was only an hour or so into my night watch when I began to hear loud screeches, the likes of which were unidentifiable to me. These screeches would come and go at no predictable pattern, but they seemed to be calling to each other and getting louder. Mr. Foxheart was also awakened by the sound, and we sat there together for a good 15 to 20 minutes, attempting to identify what creature it could belong to. Having no such luck, we woke Dr. McMillan, who also stated that these sounds were not of an animal in which he was familiar with. We were certain, however, that it was multiple animals, a pack of some sort, and that they were very predatory. We grabbed our rifles and lanterns and headed towards the source of the nearest cries, but the cries had stopped. I heard some rustling just to our right, and upon raising my lantern, I was flabbergasted to see a large emu of some sort, but with a large horse head, sharp claws on both hands and feet, and a long, feathery tail. Its eyes glistened in my light, and though I only caught a quick glimpse of it, I could see that it was a beast almost the size of a horse. The animal quickly darted off with great speed. The other two men were just as puzzled as I am. Though Dr. McMillan had said that what we had just seen looked very much like a species in the Dromaeosauridae family, a species of dinosaur. We tracked them down for about a mile, but the further we pushed away from camp, the more that we began to hear loud screeches, to which Foxheart agreed, sounded very much like warning cries. Evidently, we were pushing into their territory deep into the forest. We lost track of the creatures and the calls subsided. We spent another couple of weeks in the forest, but after that night, made no further contact or found any relevant traces, and so decided that this pack must have moved deeper into the forest to avoid human contact. I had never really been a big believer in cryptids like Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster. Sure, it was amusing to watch those documentaries on the Discovery Channel, or those videos on YouTube, but I always felt that there were other explanations for what people had encountered. This connection, however, was just too tantalizing. There was no way it could be exactly as everyone had described it. Where could it have been hiding all these years? And besides, it had been a while since I had just gotten away back to nature. Not that I needed uh, such an excuse. After an exhausting few months of work and school, balanced my brain was on autopilot. Once the parks had opened back up, I decided to plan a solo outing for myself. I packed up some gear, my Kodak camera, rations, and my lucky knife, 
and I headed out west to the sequoias. I drove up the winding roads, past some devastation left by the fires of the summer, businesses and homes that were burnt down. Some were just being cleared, some were being rebuilt. It was good to see that society would carry on, though I had no doubt in my mind that there were lives that were ruined. Would we ever learn a lesson? It was good to get out of the car after a few hour drive and stretch once I had found a good campsite. It was lucky to find a place so secluded, probably because this was an area which was associated with the alleged attacks. I actually did go on evening hikes with my Kodak and a field recorder. I'm not sure what I expected really. I guess I let my imagination get the best of me. I only wanted to spend a good week. I don't like wasting my vacation leave willy-nilly. And then it became real. It was a Thursday night when I was awoken from my sleep by a loud screeching sound. It invaded my dreams first and then pulled me out, looking up at the moonlit tent walls. I laid there quietly for I don't know how long, trying to decipher that sound. The journal entry that came to mind. Was this what my great-great-grandfather had heard? I was both excited and terrified. I had to investigate. I grabbed my Kodak, flashlight, and of course my knife, and slowly crawled out of my tent. I found that I was not as good as my great-great-grandfather had been at determining directions, as the sound sounded like it was coming from all around the forest, echoing through the old pines and off the cliffs. It soon became apparent to me that, as my grandfather had also determined... There were multiple calls responding to each other. I don't know what oddly placed bravery came over me, but I had the sudden courage to search into the dark forest for them. I quietly scanned the area for them, at first only circling my campsite. Luckily, I had a good sense of direction, so I knew I wouldn't get lost. I then got a good bearing on where the sound was emanating from, so I started strolling in that direction. I walked for a good ten minutes when these screeches suddenly began to bark louder and more frequently. I heard a rustle just off in the distance to my left. I quickly aimed at my powerful light, and I saw a black bear running off. It wasn't really the bears that I was worried about, though, as I always had a small can of bear spray on me. But what was he running from? For whatever asinine reason, maybe I was still a bit tired, but I pressed on. Now, I'm not a tracker by any means. I wasn't even in the Boy Scouts. But I could have sworn that I saw odd bird-like tracks in the dirt. Or at least I thought I did. The hair stood on my neck as more and more, the events of the journal entry and the story suddenly became more plausible. It couldn't be, could it? This whole time, I guess I just thought I was going to find some loudly mating birds and then have a good chuckle and go back to bed. There was a more commotion going on around me. I would frantically whip my light in the direction, but I would see nothing. Maybe about an hour or so into my night stroll, I came across some odd structure. It looked like some kind of weaving of sticks and trash. I cautiously approached for a closer look. My god, it was a nest, and there were eggs in there, odd-looking eggs. They looked like the size of regular chicken eggs, actually. I stood there dumbfounded for a moment. 
and then it hit me. Something literally hit me. I went stumbling back as something slammed into my side with immense force. I quickly scrambled to my feet and frantically looked around. There were clicking noises now coming from all around me. And then I saw it. It jumped out of the foliage with tremendous height and began to cackle at me, bowing low. It was trying to intimidate me. Some sort of bird-like animal with a long tail and diagonally pointing up, and a long snout and claws at the end of its feathered arms. I instantly drew the connection between these creatures and the creatures of my grandfather's stories. I just stumbled upon something that may have existed for millions of years, evolving in its own way, in near total isolation and uncategorized by humans. Funny enough, however, I did note one noticeable difference. These creatures were not actually horse-sized, more like the size of a large dog. Some things are just exaggerated, I guess. In either case, the one staring me down sent shivers coursing through my body. I was suddenly knocked down again. I pushed myself up with all of my might, but there was another one. The one in front of me was just a distraction. Now there were three, all flanking me. I knew that there had to be more. I also knew that they were just defending their nest, but I wasn't any less terrified. The ones on my right charged me. I got him with my bear spray just as he had launched. I got him square in the face as he began to flail. The others looked puzzled and squawked at each other. I quickly sprayed a line of spray and backed away slowly. I continued fast walking backwards with my light on their nest until it was out of sight. I would continuously hear squawking from around me. These forest ninjas were monitoring my every move. I had my bear spray ready as I figured that would be a more effective defense than my knife. It wasn't nearly as sharp as what they were packing. Every once in a while I would catch a glimpse of them, their eyes shining in my lights off in the distance, flanking me. If these animals really wanted to, they could have swarmed me easily. I think they were just being sure that I didn't pose a further threat to their nest. They weren't taking any chances and neither should I. I began hiking towards my jeep, bypassing my campsite as it would have been foolish of me to try to sleep there tonight. After some time, as I approached the roadside clearing where I parked my jeep, the squawking and rustling had faded. I hauled myself into my jeep, exhausted from the running and the terror. I locked the door as I reclined my seat and lay there contemplating what I had just experienced, wondering if it was real or just a dream brought on by too many nights watching creepy videos. I didn't notice myself I drift off to sleep. The next morning, I got up late around 11-ish, as you can imagine, after having the rough night that I did. I made the short hike to my campsite and found it undisturbed. I packed up my tent and the rest of my belongings and gear, but took one last look around the site. I didn't see anything that would provide indication of what had happened last night. I normally don't drink coffee, but I grabbed some at the nearest 7-Eleven, as I figured I would have a long drive home. I unpacked my stuff as usual, as if nothing different had happened this time. I don't know what I was expecting. Maybe it was a dream. Heck, I didn't even think to use my camera or my field recorder. Dang it. As I was unpacking my backpack, however, 
I noticed something that was caught to the back strap. It was a feather. A large feather.